There have been a bunch of new Python web frameworks coming out in the past few years. Generally, these have been focused solely on Python 3 and have tried to leverage Python's new async and await features. However, these frameworks have come with their own new APIs. They may be amazing, but it's still something new to learn and a barrier to migrating over to them and between them. That's why when I learned about Court from Philip Jones, I was excited. It's an async-enabled web framework that attempts to be 100% compatible with Flask, including the extensions. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 147, recorded January 18th, 2018. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is brought to you by Smarkets and Rollbar. Be sure to check out what they're offering during their segments. It really helps support the show. It's that conference time of year, everyone. There's actually a bunch of interesting things happening around Python conferences. So let's do a quick update. First, we'll do this chronologically. First, PyCascades is happening in Vancouver, BC, January 22nd and 23rd. I'm going to be there. So if you are one of the lucky people to have actually gotten a ticket before they sold out, hope to see you there in Vancouver. Next, we have PyColumbia in Medellin, Colombia. This is February 9th, 10th, and 11th. So if you're in South America or want to go to South America and would love to go to this conference, please check out the PyColumbia conference. Those guys are doing cool stuff down there. Next up, PyCon Slovakia. This is March 9th to 11th in Bratislava, and I'm actually going to be speaking there and doing a workshop. If you're in Europe and you can make it to Bratislava in March, that would be awesome. Please come say hello or attend one of my talks or workshops. And finally, the big one, PyCon US in Cleveland, Ohio, May 10th. I personally just finalized all my travel plans. I hope to see you there. There's still tickets available. They're not yet sold out as far as I know. So hurry, hurry, because just like Vancouver, they will sell out. We're also going to have a booth with lots of cool giveaway stuff there. So please stop by our booth and say hello if you make it to PyCon US. All of these conferences are amazing, and I hope you can make at least one of them. Now, let's get to the interview. Phil, welcome to Talk Python. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> it's great to have you here. I'm a big fan of asynchronous programming, and I consider myself really a web developer at heart. And so this project that you are creating is really, really interesting to me. Court, kind of an asynchronous version of Flask, and we're going to get into all the details in that and, and really dig into it. But before we do, let's start with your story. How did you get into programming in Python? So I got into programming to really to make games when I was a teenager. The first one was specifically was to try and make uh, my own version of Cannon Fodder, which I quite enjoyed playing around my friend's house. So that's how I got into it, and it was VB originally for me. VB, like VB6 type of thing? Yeah, I think it must have been, yeah. Or the like the Microsoft Visual Basic, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very interesting. That's a long ways from the web. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> it is cool. So you started out in Visual, in Visual Basic and creating that, and that sounds really fun. Where did you go from there? Originally thinking of doing computer science at university, but I, I did physics instead. But over the time, I got more and more into coding. And uh, by the time I did my PhD, that was quite heavy on the simulation parts. And uh, later on in the postdoc, I switched, roughly speaking, from C++ to Python. So 
reasonably new to Python, but uh, that's the kind of overview of the how I progressed in the languages. Oh, yeah, really cool. What was your PhD focus? It was background rejection in uh, neutrino experiments in Canada, so and the, the simulation of the experiment itself, so a lot of physics simulation. Oh, yeah, that's cool. And, of course, computation and is really front and center in that kind of stuff, right? You can't really explain it anymore without the uh, Monte Carlo simulation. It's too complex. Yeah. Monte Carlo simulations are really amazing. They seem like magic to me. Here's the thing that'll take a month. Oh, but we can do it in five minutes. <laughs> Very cool. If you're willing to accept a little uncertainty, we can do it really quick. All right, that's cool. So what do you do day to day? Not still physics simulations, right? No, I left uh, physics about three years ago now. I work for a company called Smarkets in London, and they're a betting exchange or event trading exchange. So they, ideally, we become like the prediction market. So you go to figure out who's going to win an election, for example. That's what we want to be. Oh, that's really cool. So probably a lot of website traffic, a lot of, do you have APIs and stuff people can consume? Exactly. So we build the website and the API to interact with the exchange to allow people to trade. So yeah, it's uh, quite heavy on um, Python. There's some JavaScript and some Erlang as well. Erlang. Okay. Very cool. That sounds like a fun thing to do day to day. And it's not that far removed from this project we're going to talk about. So I kind of want to start the conversation and set the stage by just talking about async IO in general. So this was introduced in what, Python 3.4, right? I think so, yeah. I think it was the Tulip project before then, which you could use with Python 3, I think. So yeah, but I think it became in the standard library in 3.4. All right. So what's the main idea behind async IO? I think it's uh, about trying to utilize the CPU as much as you can. So instead of uh, just being idle while you're waiting for IO, you've switched to something else. You gain the concurrency that way. To me, that's that's what it's about. Yeah, I think one of the real interesting things is web requests are so often waiting on other things. Like at the web server level, at the web framework level, a request comes in and it says, hey, I'm this user. I care about this data. What's the very next thing you do? You either call a microservice, you maybe find it on disk, or you go talk to a database. Regardless, that whole process is just going, and I'll just be here for <laughs> when you need me, waiting for you to get back to me on that data so I can give it to the user, right? Yeah, exactly. And so if you if you could somehow say, well, let's pause that until that bit of work has an answer back from the async IO, from, from the IO conversation, right, to the database or whatever, and let some other part of code that's going to run, run, so it can then begin to wait. You know, a lot of hurry up and wait on the web server. And so the async I.O. basically means if you're waiting on I.O., that same thread can be processing, can release the gill and be processing other things, which I think is especially important in the web world. I think it goes a, a bit further as well. Like if you compare it to, say, threading, which is a, another way to achieve the same thing, in that it's obviously uh, coroutines are much more lightweight, so you can handle many more of these requests at any point in time than you can with threads. So that's the other part of it that makes it really useful for web servers. Yeah, the lightweight part is really, really interesting. I mean, anyone who's sort of worked with a generator, it's kind of kind of like that. And threads themselves have all sorts of overhead that comes with them, creating a thread, destroying a thread. So maybe you put them into a thread pool, but threads themselves, they have context switches at the, the kernel CPU level. They may mess up the cache, right? The, mm -hmm. uh, the L1, L2 cache. And so then they, they kind of can wreck performance as you cycle between the threads. You know, the cost of a thread varies by 
operating system, but they can have like a meg of stack space allocated to them. There's all sorts of things that limit how many you can have. So you can have a 10, no problem, a hundred, no problem, a thousand starts to, you know, maybe push the actual memory limits of your computer with these, the sort of async IO stuff, you can have many thousands, which is, I think, really awesome. So maybe give us a quick comparison to this concept with like eventlet or gevent. How are they similar or different? So I think uh, eventlet and gevent are the ones you, you typically use with Flask at the moment. And uh, I think eventlet is roughly started out as a fork of gevent. So they're, they're similar in principle, those two. And uh, they're all three, including async are very similar in principle. They're an event loop that uh, runs tasks or greenlets or coroutines and allow yielding when there's I.O. But I think the crucial difference and what I think I.O. I think does differently to all the choices I've seen so far is that it makes the, the yielding explicit. You, you have to write the await keyword. And that is, well, it fits the Python philosophy a lot better, obviously explicit being better than implicit. And I think it makes it a lot clearer to the to the user because you now know when these changes are going to happen. And you get a feeling that you're actually writing these yields in your code rather than there's some magic in the background making it happen. Right, exactly. That's very cool. So basically, anytime you're going to call one of these async methods, you say await. And that signals to the runtime to say, now we're going to give up this execution and pause until this I.O., or this event completes, go on and, and you sort of really clearly know and call out where things are going to sort of pause, uh, at least for that request, but also yield the execution, right? I think it was probably a little clearer in, before they introduced the async and await keywords because you'd write an explicit yield to actually yield and a yield from to just switch control to your next coroutine. Whereas just with the await keywords, you could await a coroutine or await something that does yield, but it's not quite clear as much. But still, you know that that line could possibly yield, which uh, uh, makes it a lot clearer. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. So one thing that you've talked about is this async IO color problem. What's that? I can't remember who termed it as such, but yeah, I certainly copied their, their choice because you, you kind of, you could imagine coloring certain colors red and the red functions call other red functions and other co- functions black and the same applies and the red functions would be coroutines asynchronous functions and the black ones just your synchronous ones uh, so i think that's where the naming comes from but the basic uh, problem part of it is that the explicit design forces you to only be able to trigger coroutines asynchronous code from coroutines so if you have a synchronous function your standard python function it's, it's quite hard to run Right. And that's one of the hearts of the problems of why so many popular web frameworks don't just enable async, right? Because it comes in through this WSGI interface, it calls, you know, the one function that is in that API, and it starts out synchronous. And so there's, there's really no layer, no place where you can sort of inject that easily, right? Not only is it viral in nature, as soon as you want to await something, you need to be in a asynchronous, uh, in a coroutine to do so. To also call that coroutine, you need to be in a coroutine again. So you go all the way up to the event loop that inevitably runs your coroutines. And Whiskey, at least in its current form, doesn't have a concept of event loop. So it, it's not having that. It's also not going to do the I.O. necessarily in a way that's going to yield to 
any event loop for you. So even if you introduce it later on, you're not necessarily getting the full advantage of uh, yielding on the I.O. You basically have to block and wait to give the request back at some point or you're going to get ahead of yourself. And that pretty much cancels out all the benefits that you had. So, so your project says we're going to take this and we're going to start from this asynchronous level. One thing I do want to call out, and I can't quickly look up where it is, but there's this great article by Christian Medina that says it's titled something like Controlling Async Creep. And he talks about this problem, this async IO coloring problem, and different techniques you can have to sort of create boundaries or, or whatnot. Very, very interesting article around this idea. But let's stay focused on this. So maybe before we get into how people work with Flask, I, I feel like Fla- the Flask API is showing up everywhere. For example, I just recently did a show on Flask Ask, which is like a Flask API for writing, say, um, echo dot type voice interactions. And you just write it as a Flask app, and it just magically plugs into that whole framework from Amazon, which is really cool. So why do you think Flask is so popular? That does sound really cool. <laughs> I, th- I think it's, it is probably <laughs> the, the API, I think. I think it's a very clear and concise API to use if you, a very simple example, the hello world with the, the decorator saying this is the root and this is the, the view function, I think you couldn't get an API clearer than that for a web framework. It's so so concise and nice. And I think the, the design choices Flask has made as a whole just really kind of emphasize this usability. So like the, the request object being a global, for example, it's just because just you're going to use it that way, it makes life so much easier. And so I think uh, this and the familiarity of that API is what kicked it off. And then I think that enabled the, the really strong community around Flask that's, that probably makes it really popular today. So the, the great blog posts you can find, especially the this, effectively the large blog post I think everyone starts with from, uh, I think, Michael Grinberg and the extensions. Oh, Miguel. Yeah, Miguel Grinberg. And he just, he's actually redoing that one for Python 3 and Modern Flask and all that. So, like, he's halfway through redoing that, which is really exciting as well. Mm. Yeah, I'll be sure to link to that. I agree. I think there's also so many plugins you can get to sort of extend Flask, right? Yeah, there's uh, extensions for almost anything you could want to do. Well, let's talk about this for a second. What if I have a Flask app, standard Flask, not Court or anything fancy like that, and I want to do something asynchronous in it? Like, Let's say I want to do WebSockets, which are basically permanent connections, right? That can't easily be done synchronously in sort of a request response style. So how would that go? Can you do it? Yeah, I think typically at the moment you'd use Gavent. At least the two popular ones, uh, which is Flask Sockets, the popular extensions, and Flask Socket IO, I believe use Gavent under the hood. And uh, you do need the event loop really to make it possible. And with those, it's actually quite easy. I think uh, you just add that extension, it takes care of the rest for you. And you can just uh, decorate a, a function that you say is a WebSocket root and uh, deal with the WebSocket directly. It's very easy. I see. So does it basically like hand it off to that that processing to just run uh, asynchronously on its own? Well, uh, if we take the Flask socket example, what that does is it'll wrap your Flask app in a Gavent whiskey server and uh, introduce the WebSocket at that that level. So a WebSocket request coming in would be handled before it gets to Flask. 
uh, although it looks like it's going to Flask, but it would be handled beforehand. And then everything else would just go straight through to Flask with the whiskey interface. So, yeah, it would work that way. Yeah, yeah, nice. This portion of Talk Python is brought to you by Smarkets, and they're looking to hire someone to write some really awesome Python code. Smarkets operates a world-leading exchange for peer-to-peer trading on sports, politics, and current affairs. As a business, Smarkets is widely recognized as one of the fastest-growing tech companies in Europe and has won a roster of awards for its success over the past few years. Headquartered in London with a new tech hub in downtown LA, the company is pioneering a self-managed organizational structure. This breaks down the traditional pyramid of hierarchical silos into a more fluid and flat network of interlinked teams where engineers are the driving force. There are no formal bosses. Staff are allowed to set their own salary, have unlimited holiday, and work where they like within the company. Over 60% of the staff are engineers who work on a modern tech stack predominantly based on Python, complemented with Erlang and JavaScript. Smarkets uses Python 3.6 throughout and deploys dockerized microservices multiple times a day. Apply to work at Smarkets by visiting talkpython.fm slash smarkets or just click the link in the episode notes. Suppose I want to have some Flask view method and it's going to, say, call a web service. It's going to talk to a Postgres database, for example. There are asynchronous ways to do those things, right? If I have AIO HTTP client, that's a really nice asyncio friendly way to call remote services. And I could use the async Postgres driver there and and call that. But with straight Flask, I can't put like async on my methods, right? Or await in it and really get it to honor that, could I? I don't think so. There was a extension called Flask AO HTTP, which I think is no longer maintained, but that I believe used the whiskey interface that AO HTTP provided, which I think is also deprecated now, sadly. But that would allow you to fairly easily, I think, make your Flask view functions async. But it wasn't, I think it had some issues whereby the, the locals, the like request G, the, those request locals would uh, get corrupted or could get corrupted. So I think that kind of ruled it out. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound amazing, right? No, no, you certainly don't want that. <laughs> there was also a, a fork of Flask I found that did make the view functions async. It was designed around async for 3.4, but I don't really, I didn't, I haven't quite tried to figure out how it worked or if it worked, but it hasn't been touched for about three years. So I don't think that's maintained either. Right. And so this maybe brings us to your project, Quart, right? What is Quart? So Quart is a web micro framework, much like Flask, uh, based on async and the Flask API. So the aim really is to provide the easiest stepping stone from someone who has a Flask app or Flask knowledge to use Asynco in that app or in a new app with that knowledge, basically. So, yeah, it's, it's just a web framework, web micro framework. Nice. So you decided instead of, because there are other Asyncio frameworks that have come around, Sanic, Gepronto, others that we can talk about later. But generally, they said, we're going to come up with a new way to program the web and we're going to sort of do it around this async IO thing. And you said, look, Flask is super popular and has this API that people already know. People can go and take Miguel's tutorial <laughs> and learn about it already. But you just want to have it work with async IO, right? And so, so we're going to start from there, right? How much did you borrow from Flask and how much did you have to start from scratch here? I've tried to borrow the entire Flask API 
and quite a bit of the Verxog API, which is the, the part under Flask that powers most of the HTTP stuff. I've tried to borrow most of that as well. So yeah, a great deal, hopefully. I, what I'd really quite like is if you have a Flask app that doesn't use any extensions, you can just find replace Flask with Quartz and then add the async and await keywords and it just runs. That's that's what I'm kind of aiming for. That's great. And how close is it to that goal? I think it's quite close. It's the I think it's really the details now. So for example, I need to work on like the e-tag handling, like how they're applied to static files and stuff like that, and subdomain handling in the routing system. I think those are real details, though. I think most of the use cases, it should be possible to just do that now, to just, as in, find, replace. Oh, that's awesome. You could go, like, grab Miguel's tutorial and just, I don't know, what's the verb of making it run on court? Courtify? <laughs> Add court capabilities to it, right? That'd be cool. Very cool. I guess one of the first questions is, why not just fork Flask and just tack on the little bits of async IO handling that you need? That would be ideal, but so at the moment, at least, it's, it's beyond what I'm able to do. And I think it, it goes back to the, the Whiskey interface, which really isn't asynchronous. So again, like if you really want the event loop to be able to get the yield on the, the request IO and the response IO, you need to be controlling that part. And so... I think it, you have to go start from Flask, go up to Verksug, and then almost go up to the Whiskey servers themselves and uh, make them asynchronous to really, well, async IO compatible to really make it, it possible. And uh, yeah, I couldn't really make that work. It, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was quite hard. I know a lot of people have tried and, and they've talked about adding like a, a, a Whiskey 2 or a various acronyms with A involving in there to basically asyncify that API. But there's really not a lot of flexibility in there. In the actual Whiskey API, which is what all the web frameworks use to plug into the various web servers, right? I, run a, I want to run on MicroWhiskey or I want to run on Gunicorn or whatever. They all speak Whiskey, so you can just plug Pyramid, Flask, Django, whatever in there, right? One of them uh, I was looking at is ASCII, which I think Django is pushing. So I think the idea there is you, you just push out the messages to a, a queue and then you have loads of things consuming it in an asynchronous fashion and then returning the results. I don't think it would quite work for Quart either, but they seem to want to, I think they're trying to suggest that is the, the next step for Whiskey, like it becomes ASCII. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's one of the acronyms I was thinking of. So how do you add on things like WebSocket support or HTTP2 pipelining where you can make a request and actually through that in single network request punch like three CSS, a JavaScript, an image, an HTML file response as one? Do you think they could make that work there? I think so, yeah, because each request could just be a separate message on their queue and then something can consume and produce the output and send it back, so... Uh, I'm sure it would work for them. Maybe you could somehow uh, bundle up the multiple responses or something at the framework level and then send it over to the network. I don't know. It's yeah, it's going to it's going to be pretty interesting with all the HTTP2 stuff coming along and 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 whatnot. Oh, definitely. I think uh HTTP2 is one of the most uh, more exciting things I've interested in and I'm very pleased that Quark can do it. So, it's a uh... Very good to play with. It can. That's really cool. So how much of that is the framework and how much of that is, say, just the server it's running on? 
say if you run it on G Unicorn, right? How much is G Unicorn doing versus how much of is Court actually doing to make the HTTP2 supported? In a traditional sense, the whiskey server does all the HTTP passing and just passes through the environment. But for, for Quart, uh, how it works with G Unicorn is we, we just use the socket. So G Unicorn doesn't actually do any HTTP passing. It all goes through to Quart. So all the HTTP2, the HTTP1, it's, it's all taken care of in Quart. And we just pipe it back out through the socket that G Unicorn's provided. Give us a sense around the kind of performance differences that people could expect. If they, say, have a standard Flask app running on G Unicorn now, if they flip to using Quart also on Genicorn, like what what do you think happens? I actually did a, I think you're going to link an article I did to, to look at this. And I, I looked at a kind of production use case where you have a, a, a simple CRUD app with a, a database in the background. And I used Genicorn with Eventlet. So it was asynchronous, fairly similar type of workload pattern and the way it approaches the problem. And I compared it against Quart. And I think with Quart, I got something like a three-time uh, throughput speed up. So the latency or the uh, the request time itself didn't really make too much of a difference, but the amount of requests it could handle at once really increased. Yeah, that's really cool. And I would guess that you probably were not working with like a super slow database or a tremendous amount of data in your, your simple test. But it seems to me like the worse the database performs, the more beneficial having this asynchronous thing could be to sort of free up the 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 waiting the waiting if the worse the waiting is the more beneficial it is to have async methods although that should apply to both sides of the test because event that would would do the same in the in the flask sense right okay yeah so if you're already switching to uh eventlet then it then it would what, have you thought about this relative to a non async flask like just a standard flask if you're not using eventlet yeah it makes a huge difference then because your requests effectively become synchronous you have to do one at a time so unless i suppose you used threading i haven't tried threading but if assuming you've got no asynchronous aspect at all then it would make a very large difference because you would have to finish the one request before you could even start the next that's for sure how interesting okay so you talked about flask and i I said one of the benefits of it is these flask extensions right there's a bunch of stuff you can plug in Uh, does quart support flask extensions supports a good fraction of them, I think it's fair to say. So uh, this goes back to that color problem we mentioned earlier, because, of course, all the extensions are synchronous. They have synchronous functions, and inevitably they're going to try and call some code that's now asynchronous in Quartz, and that's that's where it becomes a problem. So I can go into the details of how it gets around that, but uh, that's why some of them work. Yeah, that'd be kind of interesting, right? Because people are going to pip install these extensions and generally not change the code. And until your framework is popular enough that people are creating sort of async equivalents of their extensions, you have to make these, you have to blend the colors, right? So how are you doing that? It's quite fun to look at. It took quite a bit of time. So if I go back to how you run a code routine, you need to run it in the event loop. And if you're outside of the event loop, it's quite easy. You just either create or get an event loop and tell it to run a coroutine, and it's all very good. But if you're in a function that's been called by something within the event loop, you can't do that. The, the actual async function run until complete, for example, will refuse to run because you're inside the event loop. And uh, it turns out this was known back during the Tulip days, and someone proposed a solution to this, which was to actually run the event loop 
again <laughs> within the event loop to run this particular coroutine. And I think it was rejected because it just made things quite complicated and uh, wasn't a, a particularly useful use case. But in this case where you've got legacy, well, you have synchronous code, trying to call asynchronous code is exactly what you need to do. So what Quart will do if you want to go down this route is monkey patch the event loop to add a method to run the event loop if you like manually for a coroutine that you specify. So it will suspend the event loop it's already in, run it itself, and then restore everything after it's complete. So it probably sounds a bit messy. <laughs> so it probably is. It sounds like it could uh, create this cascading chain of like nested event loops going down and down and down. Yeah, probably so. But it does allow like uh, these extensions with their, their synchronous call to another function to be able to call an asynchronous function without them being able to tell. There's just a layer in between that does this kind of mapping from sync to async. That's really cool. I'm uh, very creative. So you said it works for most of them. When it fails, what happens? Like, why does it not work? Do you remember? So Flask has these request locals, like the request object or the G object. And when you try and do anything with them or access any attribute of them, it effectively proxies that action to an instance that's local to the thread or greenlet that you're on. And I hope that makes sense. It's proxying, basically. So what I can do in Quart is I can, during that proxy, also take it from a synchronous call to an asynchronous call. So that works really well for these local proxy objects. The problem is when an extension uses the Flask class itself, like the app, because I haven't figured out a way yet to effectively proxy the call and convert it from synchronous to asynchronous. So if, you, if the extension just uses these globals, it's good. If it uses the app, I need to be a bit more clever. Hopefully you get that puzzle figured out because it'd be really cool to have that, that supported there. Very nice. So what template languages are supported? You have Jinja 2? It follows the Flask design in that respect and just does Jinja 2. But I'm, I'm sure like the, I think there's an extension called Flask Mako. It's quite popular. I think that may work as well. The question becomes whether that template in Engine is asynchronous itself. So if it isn't, you just get a bit of a performance hit. Right. I see. So the Jinja 2 one supports asynchronous behaviors in directly it does it's it's actually if you if you look at the code it's kind of amazing how they do it so if you're running python 3.6 and you ask it to be asynchronous it will patch itself to add the asynchronous methods it's uh yeah it's really quite good to look at wow that's quite awesome actually i didn't realize it did that so i'm guessing you don't support python 2 in this is it python 3 only it is it's even more restrictive than that actually it's, it's python 3.6 only because i use asynchronous generators one of the uses being if you want to stream a response you want to yield data back whilst being asynchronous so because of that you can't use anything other than python 3.6 where they were introduced yeah that's really interesting so i feel like a few years ago the story was well, people can't move to Python 3 because there's all this cool stuff that we're using that only supports Python 2. And now I think more and more we're ending up in a situation where it's like there's all these amazing new things, but you're, they're only accessible to you if you're using the, the latest versions of Python 3, which I think that's a good move. The other thing it, it does as well, which really constrains it to Python 3 or I've used, is uh, I type into everything, including the variables, which the syntax, well, the nicest syntax was only introduced in Python 3.6. So, yeah. 
I quite like that as well. I really do as well. I find it makes the editors much smarter about the types of things you're actually working with. You can run tools and say, no, no, you're passing an int. You're supposed to pass the whole object, not the idea of the object here, things like that. It's great. Definitely. This portion of Talk Python to Me has been brought to you by Rollbar. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors, Ugh. relying on users to report errors, digging through log files, trying to debug issues, or getting millions of alerts just flooding your inbox and ruining your day. With Rollbar's full stack error monitoring, you get the context, insight, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster. Adding Rollbar to your Python app is as easy as pip install Rollbar. You can start tracking production errors and deployments in eight minutes or less. Are you considering self-hosting tools for security or compliance reasons? Then you should really check out Rollbar's compliant SaaS option. Get advanced security features and meet compliance without the hassle of self-hosting, including HIPAA, ISO 27001, Privacy Shield, and more. They'd love to give you a demo. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to talkpython.fm slash rollbar and check them out. Yeah, so actually converting your Flask methods to Quart methods is quite easy, right? You just... You have your, let's say, like a review function. I think this is an example you have on your website. You can say def add review data equals request.getjson. Or you can just say async def add review data equals await request get JSON. And, and you just add the async and await keywords and off it goes, right? Yeah. So I think it wouldn't be that hard to convert a small to medium-sized Flask app to Quart. What, what do you think? How much effort and testing has to be done? I think you're right. I think small ones should be quite easy will probably make it hard for people is that they're probably going to call something else like you were saying earlier if you're going to do a web request to a or http request to a microservice or something to a database or something like that and those libraries are likely to be synchronous rather than async and well this comes back to the color problem you're going to have to switch from say psycho pg to async pg or your pi redis to like AO redis or requests to AOHTPP, and that's probably going to be more work because those APIs are subtly different usually. I would think probably the Redis wouldn't be that hard. Probably the AIOHTP client, not such a big deal. But I feel like when you get down to database stuff, <laughs> that's where the complexity lives a lot of times. So maybe maybe upgrading the database driver or package to, to be the async one is probably where it's most challenging. I don't know. Have you tried? Have you got some experience? Yeah, I've uh, played along with myself. And uh, yeah, it's because uh, I typically use PsychoPG directly. I don't use SQL Alchemy on top of it usually. And that's not too bad. It's, it's fairly easy to change. And it has a big bonus. Like there's a async PG. If you look at how Magic Stack report the benchmarking for it, looks much, much quicker, which is excellent. But yes, if you have if you have a lot of ORM stuff, I think you're almost stuck. I'm not sure I've seen an ORM that's async as yet. I know that SQL Alchemy hasn't done it. I feel like I feel like there is one out there, and I I'm hesitant to say which one I'm guessing it is because if it's wrong, I'll try to put some notes uh, in the show notes or something. I've seen one that I thought uh, allowed it, but yeah, certainly SQL Alchemy doesn't, and that's. That's unfortunate, right? So you, it kind of says, look, if you're going to do the async stuff, then you're kind of stuck. I guess 
I guess there's a few things you could do. You could move your requests out, say like another thread that that you wrap up and you await that thing's response or something. But it's it definitely makes it not easy, right? Yeah. So AsyncIO makes that bit reasonably easy. That I think there's a function called running executor, which will do almost exactly what you just said. So. Yeah, that's probably what you'd have to do. Okay, so I found what I was looking for, and it's actually not the ORM itself. It's an add-on. It's it's called P. So the ORM is Peewee, which is uh, sort of a small ORM type of thing, right? It's it's pretty popular. It's got close to five thousand stars. But there's Peewee dash async, which is an async IO interface for Peewee. So that one. That one, you can do it. So you can basically say await objects.create or things like that, where you basically do the queries and then you can await the response, which is kind of cool. Oh, that is cool. Yeah, I didn't come across that. Yeah, but it's unfortunate that it's not like the most popular one, like SQL Alchemy or say the Django one or something like this, right? Like it's, yeah, but if people are looking for it, like maybe you'd have to switch to Pee Async if right now it's written in, say, SQL Alchemy. I don't know. So what do you think? Like thinking about this database problem, like can you take a SQL Alchemy Flask app or a MongoDB Flask app and somehow shoehorn it in so you can still do these queries. You don't have to completely rewrite your data access layer, but make it async friendly. Easy, not easy? I think you, in all honesty, it requires a bit of effort. Yes, you'd have to, you probably want to choose a different driver. So you need to spend some time looking into it. And then you'd probably have to rewrite a bit to actually make it work. So yeah, I don't think it's, it's all that easy. It doesn't sound easy to me either. Although it may be worth it. It's definitely not going to be just a throw an async and await keyword here and there and just go with it, right? <laughs> Indeed. I, I think it is. It does look to be worth it. If you, there's some articles by Magic Stack, and uh, the way they talk at the performance they can get through the async stuff, it, it looks really, really good, really very fast. Yeah, I think it's really quite powerful. But it also probably depends, right? Like you guys, I suspect, have a lot of traffic. If, you know, you do... 10 requests a second on your server or one, maybe just leave it alone, right? Pay $5 more and get a bigger server and just be done with it. There's probably some threshold where below that it's not worth rewriting it until there's enough demand. What do you think? Certainly, yeah. It's uh, Even for us, it's not necessarily worth it to wholesale replace our services with Quart. I think we're only really uh, kind of experimenting with AsyncIO's assistance at the moment. So Cool. So let's compare this a little bit with some of the other, uh, what I consider the Python 3 async web frameworks. So we've got Sanic, we have Gepronto, AIO HTTP. Like, how do you see your work similar or different to these? There's kind of two approaches have been taken here. And they're, most of the, the Python 3 async ones I've seen have, have been more the micro-framework style than the Django style. Uh, I think there's, there's, there's the ones that are Flask-like, which are Sanic and Jalpranto, I think. And then there's AOH2P that I think for very legitimate reasons by design doesn't want to go down the Flask approach. So I think that's basically the first choice. And then I think Quart fits in because it's not Flask-like. Hopefully it is the Flask API. So I think that, that sets it aside and it's kind of the motivation for it. So then I think there's, there's kind of that scale. And then there's the what is the aim of the project in that scale. So Sanic and Gelpranto, I think, are all about speed. As, as far as I can understand what they're aiming for, they're really about trying to get performance out of it. And I think AOHTP is 
meant to be kind of like an all-encompassing HTTP library, right? So it does the client side as well as the server. So I think there's these these varying kind of like aims for the projects. Right. And I, I think it is a massive advantage to say, we're not going to create something Flask-like. We're going to create Flask effectively, but async-enabled sort of natively. And one of the main benefits there is obviously people can migrate more easily to it. Uh, you already talked about the Flask extensions, all those kinds of things, right? To me, it's mostly about not having to learn something new. So I did play with Sanic. I quite like Sanic, but I didn't want to have to learn how Sanic did things. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And if you want to go on Stack Overflow and ask, how do I do this with my web framework X, you'll have way more answers if X equals Flask. It's true, definitely. Yeah, yeah. just the more tutorials, more courses, et cetera, et cetera. Although I suspect there's minor differences. The majority of it is is kind of still the Flask API, the Flask story, right? There's certainly, there is de- differences in the details and obviously async. Yeah, so what are the hangups people might get trying to switch to court? Are there things they have to be on the lookout for just due to the async nature or how uh, how careful they got to be i think one of the most annoying parts is uh if you have a coroutine say you want the, the example you said where you await the request.getjson if you forget to write the await word then the data let me start again if you have data equals request.getjson in your flask and you change it to quartz that line of code will still run uh, it was just that data would now hold a coroutine object instead of the data you're expecting. And that could probably catch you up quite easily because until you try and use it, <laughs> you don't know that it's going to be something different. <laughs> what do you mean status code doesn't exist anymore on this this thing? Like, why did this start failing? Why are the attributes missing, right? Of course, because you didn't await yeah. it. Right? <laughs> yeah, interesting. Uh, so let's talk about the deployment story. You talk a lot about using G-Unicorn. Is it, you said you can basically run both Quart and Flask apps on top of that in more or less the same way with just different config settings, right? Yeah, you just change the, the worker and uh, that should be enough. Nice, yeah. So you say uh, Eventlet is the one to use for Flask and Quart-UVLoop for Quart. UVLoop's pretty interesting. Why don't you tell people about that? My understanding, which I think is wrong, is that the kind of history goes from libevent to libev, which is what Eventlet and Gevent, I think, are based on, to libuv. And they're all improvements on the, on the previous iteration. And UVLoop is the kind of Python bindings to get into, to change the asynco loop policy to use UV loop instead of the default one. And the reason you'd, you'd want to do this is because it looks like from all the stuff that's been published that UV loop really just make things run a lot quicker. And if I understand it correctly, it's the same kind of base event loop that uh, Node.js uses. So it's got some like uh, proven track record of being very good. So, yeah, if you switch it to the UV loop worker, you can really get some performance boosts. I get the same impression reading around that UV loop definitely speeds that up. And, and it's cool that it's the same one that Node.js runs on because Node.js, for all of its flaws and challenges, is definitely good at handling lots of requests based on I.O., completion waiting behaviors right yes definitely i find it kind of amusing if i've understood the history right is that uv loop is a rewrite of ev uh, lib ev lib uv is a rewrite to work on windows uh, at least that was the original motivation but as i understand it the uv loop kind of bindings doesn't work on windows so i find that kind of like sad irony <laughs> that is very ironic it's turned its back on its its origin how interesting so do you, have you talked with Armin Roenicker, the guy who maintains Creative Flask, about 
what you've done, how it maybe could be contributed back to Flask, what those guys are up to, things like that? I haven't, no. I was actually hoping, because I, I think you've spoke to him on this program. I was going to ask if you could uh, introduce me, which would be excellent. Yeah, I'd be happy to, sure. Yeah, I don't really know what's going on in official Flask around all this stuff. So it seems like you've got a really nice head start. So that's cool. I don't know what's going on officially for Flask either, but it doesn't look like they're actively pursuing Async AsyncIO at the moment. It looks like they're pursuing like the release one of Flask, uh, as far as I can tell, which would be great as well. Yeah, it would be great. I, I suspect making major changes to Flask in terms of APIs and, and stuff is a a slow, tedious, careful process. Same thing for Django and for Pyramid. And these, these well-established, long-living web frameworks, compatibility is a probably a top concern. And I think you probably have to make some difficult changes to introduce AsyncIO as well. So I guess my, my hope would be that Quart proves that this is desired and useful. And then there's, there's more kind of desire to actually make some flash changes and to be able to merge the two. Yeah, then you'll push a major, major pull request over to Flask. Well, <laughs> it'd have to be Flask and Verksug, I think, to, <laughs> if it's ever going to be possible. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, very <laughs> cool. All right, so uh, what, where are you going in terms of the future for Quart? What's next? I said earlier, there's details about the API that don't fully match at the moment, which I'd obviously I need to get correct. So like little details about how e-tags are used and how static files are served, that kind of thing. After that, I want to kind of like really demonstrate the robustness of the HTTP2 handling and the WebSocket handling. So luckily, there's some compliance testing uh, projects out there, which I can use for that. And then it's also about the, the development process. So Flask and Verks like, have this really nice kind of debug web page that tells you what's going wrong when you try and do something. I think Quart needs something like that as well. Sounds very cool. One of the areas of performance that we spoke about was with async and await and, and sort of the asynchronous view. We also talked about HTTP2. How do you see that affecting performance? Do you see like the ability to have HTTP2 also adding like another layer of speedups? I do see it. it it makes things quicker when I when I test it. I haven't published anything yet because I haven't really figured out what a kind of safe comparison benchmark is because the cost of opening connections is quite high, but maybe you should include that. But you could effectively pipeline your maybe 20 connections down one and get a big difference. But whether that's fair or not, I'm not sure. So I don't know how to, how to talk about it in a fair way. <laughs> <laughs> It's really uh, precarious to publish benchmarks. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> no matter what you do, there's always someone that's going to show you how you're wrong. <laughs> and usually what that means is you're wrong because I use it this way and you're measuring it that way. And if I used it the way I use it, it wouldn't give you the same results as the way that you use it. And so your results are misleading or, or whatever, right? And it's just really hard to get something truly representative of what people are doing when they're doing all these different things, I think. One thing I'd really like to do, if I could convince my colleagues, is change one of our edge servers to be HTTP2. And then you'd be able to see quite a big difference in real use cases. So that'd be excellent. Yeah, well, let us know when it's out. I'll, I'll definitely point people at it. That'd be awesome. It would be. Yeah, yeah, very cool. So one thing I noticed is you have your project on GitLab. And a lot of people have their projects on GitHub. And you've talked about this a little bit. So... Why GitLab over, say, GitHub? Initially, it looks a bit silly because uh, GitHub is way more popular than GitLab. And projects tend to be judged by, the. I think, 
at least superficially to begin with, by the kind of stars and forks they have, which is always going to be low on, on GitLab. But uh, for me, GitLab is is open source, which uh, sways a lot of it in my mind. Uh, it certainly made a difference to the company I work for when we were starting up, like to have such a great open source project we could just use to begin with. And uh, the other thing I kind of like is its CI system is really nicely integrated, and that works very well for Quart at the moment. So that's very easy. So Phil, if you going to work on Quart, what editor do you open up? I use Emacs, although I think I use Emacs really badly. I don't really <laughs> add any plugins. I tend to use it just in the terminal, very vanilla. I went through a stage of having it reasonably optimized, and I just reverted it all back to plain. So, yeah, I don't put too much in my editor. I probably should, but, uh, yeah, I just open Emacs and go from there. All right, cool. And in addition to Quart, which it, Pip and Sol Quart, right? What other notable HiPI packages are out there that you want to recommend? I think I'll recommend two that are using Quart. I recommend Flake 8, which has almost certainly caught loads of silly bugs and style issues. And I think mostly I use it to take away any like uh, discussion or uncertainty about the style. And uh, MyPy, for the same reason of catching the, the bugs and to make sure the, the documentation is right. Yeah, MyPy is very cool. And there's a lot of activity around MyPy right now. It's really nice. For sure. All right, so final call to action. People are interested in Court. Uh, how do they get started? Do you, Are you looking for contributors to the project? Things like that? Absolutely, yes. It would be great if people could give it a go and uh, open issues or pull requests, merge requests of uh, changes. That would be absolutely excellent. And uh, hopefully it's easy as just pip install Court and... Uh, give it a go. Hopefully it's as easy as Flask is like uh, basically five line quick start. Yeah, that's really cool. And you have a video that's now on YouTube from one of the PyCons, which I'll link to. That's uh, PyCon UK, right? 2017? Yep, that's the one, yeah. All right, so if people want to watch your your video presentation as well, I'll be sure to link to that. So yeah, it looks looks like a really cool project. Thanks for creating it and coming on the show to share it with everyone. Thank you for the invite. Of course. Talk to you later. Hey, bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Today's guest was Philip Jones, and this episode has been brought to you by Smarkets and Rollbar. Smarkets is looking for talented Python developers to build amazing Python 3-based microservices. Apply at talkpython.fm slash smarkets and level up your career. Rollbar takes the pain out of errors. They give you the context and insight you need to quickly locate and fix errors that might have gone unnoticed until your users complain, of course. As Talk Python to Me listeners, track a ridiculous number of errors for free at rollbar.com slash talkpython to me. Are you or a colleague trying to learn Python? Have you tried books and videos that just left you bored by covering topics point by point? Well, check out my online course, Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps at talkpython.fm slash course to experience a more engaging way to learn Python. And if you're looking for something a little more advanced, try my Write Pythonic Code course at talkpython.fm slash pythonic. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, Google Play feed at slash play, and direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code. Thank you.